This is Get Ready for Sunday, a more or less weekly podcast reviewing the scripture readings for Sunday Masses in Roman Catholic churches. I'm Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. In the next few minutes, I'll try to clear away some of the obstacles we modern readers encounter when trying to extract the true richness and wisdom of scripture. Barriers like cultural differences, nuances in translation, and the entirely different worldviews held by people today compared to the worldview of the original audience for the scripture. In preparing these little reviews, I do use published works of genuine scripture scholars and thoughtful commentators, but fair warning, all this otherwise good information does get sifted through my own tiny brain. This episode will look at the readings for the fourth Sunday of Lent prescribed for parishes where men and women, known as the elect, are preparing to be baptized at the upcoming Easter Vigil. In that circumstance, the Church stipulates that the Mass readings for year A of the lectionary cycle are to be proclaimed on the third, fourth, and fifth Sundays of Lent, even in years B and C. Why the same scripture every year when there are elect in your parish? On these three Sundays, special community rites called the scrutinies are prayed over the elect. Diana McCallenthal, a recognized authority on the practice of adult baptisms, explains that first, the three year A gospel stories, the woman at the well, the man born blind, and the raising of Lazarus, are essential to the scrutiny prayers, which were crafted with those readings in mind. Second, she says, biblical scholars have consistently found in manuscripts from as early as the 7th century this particular set and order of readings have been closely tied to baptismal preparation. And third, the progression of these readings thematically reflects conversion, from no faith to total faith, even when facing death. As always, you can find the day's scripture readings on the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops website, usccb.org. On the top navigation bar, select Prayer and Worship, and from the menu that drops down from there, choose Daily Readings Calendar. From the options, choose the readings for year A. So let's get to it. We are right in the middle of Lent. The day is called Laetare Sunday. Laetare is the infinitive form of a Latin verb that translates as to rejoice. We rejoice at coming to the turnaround point. We're on the downhill side of our season of introspection and penitence. Easter is drawing near. Our scriptural messages today revolve around seeing as compared to blindness, light as compared to darkness, using these physical phenomena as metaphors for the far deeper perception of which only our hearts and souls are capable. We start in the first book of Samuel with an event from more than 3,000 years ago. It's the story of God sending Samuel the last of Israel's ruling judges, to anoint one who would become king of Israel, directed to the household of Jesse, a farmer and sheep breeder in Bethlehem, 
Samuel is instructed to look at Jesse's sons. From among them, God has chosen the next king of Israel. God promises to guide Samuel in his choice. Seven sons of Jesse are brought before Samuel. None is chosen. Jesse's eighth son is David, left to tend sheep in the field while the choosing is taking place at a sacred meal. Considered too young and inconsequential for his father to even consider presenting him to Samuel, David is finally brought in to be seen. Samuel knows immediately. He's told directly by God that he is looking at God's chosen one, and so he anoints David. The young future king is described as ruddy, a term connoting a healthy, reddish, terracotta coloring to his skin. This is a literary reference going in two directions at once. First, it echoes the creation story of Adam, the man formed out of clay. At the same time, it is also a prefiguring of the man who will be born blind about a thousand years into the future, whose sight will be restored by Jesus putting clay on his eyes in today's gospel. What's going on below the surface in this story? Samuel is called to a process of careful discernment in anointing the king-to-be. Discernment is a process far more complex than simply making a decision between options. As God tells Samuel, Do not judge from appearance or stature. Not as man sees does God see, because man sees the appearance, but the Lord looks into the heart. It is a comparison between the type of seeing that is governed by culture, self-oriented goals, and competitiveness, as compared to allowing the unpredictable promptings of the Holy Spirit to be one's ultimate guide. Samuel is being called to look beyond the facade and instead be led by inspiration that goes far beyond physical perception. The truth here is carried not by light to the eyes, but by spirit to the soul. Please note also that both the shepherd boy David and the unnamed blind man in the gospel are inconsequential and overlooked by their native societies. They are noticed, called forward, by divine love into a new level of being and service. In David's story, it's most important to note that the Spirit of God rushed upon him. He is instantly empowered to carry out the work for which he has been chosen. Throughout Scripture and throughout history, it is always the case that God equips those called to accomplish an otherwise impossible task. In another echo of the creation story, like Adam, David will eventually stray from the path God sets out for him, but will eventually return to following the will of the Father. Here, then, is the day's reading from the first book of Samuel. The Lord said to Samuel, Fill your horn with oil and be on your way. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem, for I have chosen my king from among his sons. As Jesse and his sons came to the sacrifice, Samuel looked at Eliab and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, 
do not judge from his appearance or from his lofty stature, because I have rejected him. Not as man sees does God see, because man sees the appearance, but the Lord looks into the heart. In the same way, Jesse presented seven sons before Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, The Lord has not chosen any one of these. Then Samuel asked Jesse, Are these all the sons you have? Jesse replied, There is still the youngest who is tending the sheep. Samuel said to Jesse, Send for him. We will not begin the sacrificial banquet until he arrives here. Jesse sent and had the young man brought to them. He was ruddy, a youth handsome to behold and making a splendid appearance. The Lord said, There, anoint him, for this is the one. Then Samuel, with the horn of oil in hand, anointed David in the presence of his brothers, and from that day on the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon David. Next, we come to a selection from the letter to the Ephesians attributed to St. Paul. But this is one of the Pauline works understood to have been written by an unknown author from among Paul's followers. It is also categorized as a circular letter, that is, one perhaps initially directed to the church in Ephesus, but meant to be circulated among multiple Christian communities. This passage, like the first reading, deals with discernment, seeing beyond the mere physical or obvious, and being guided by senses that rise to the level of inspiration and grace. The author is urging his audience to learn and then practice the ways of life that are pleasing to God. In the preceding chapter before what we hear today, he lists a series of sinful behaviors that are common among Gentiles and were common in the previous lives of new Christians. These behaviors, he says, must be turned around into that which is pleasing to God, things such as a thief becoming an honest laborer, foul language being replaced by uplifting words, as well as bitterness, rage, and slander being replaced by kindness, compassion, and forgiveness. And the warnings conclude, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for because of these things the wrath of God is coming upon the disobedient. Other translations render the disobedient as the sons of disobedience or the children of disobedience. This last phrasing matches nicely with the counterpoint in our passage today instructing the Christian community to live as children of the light. This passage, like the gospel to follow, also carries the theme of light as compared to darkness. Here the author is emphasizing the magnitude of the change that comes with knowing and following Christ. He goes beyond saying that they were once in darkness and have come into the light. He tells them, you once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Three qualities are named as products of light, goodness, righteousness, and truth. This, again, is an emphasis on the complete change of one's nature that comes from true commitment to life in and with Christ. Then comes a series of imperatives, instructions to the community, 
Learn what pleases God. Take no part in works of darkness and even expose them to light. It's doubtful, though, that the writer was urging Christians to become gossip mongers or muckrakers. Rather, it seems to me that this is a comparison of good works done in the light and evil works done and hidden in darkness. Put more directly, I read the advice as centered on the illumination that comes from living a virtuous life, being such a sharp contrast to a life of deceit and selfishness, that the light of the virtuous life itself will expose the darkness of that which is its opposite. The last few lines can seem cryptic or obscure, but at the same time, they are closely identified with the process of conversion to and baptism into Christ. There are three stark changes in three short lines. Awake, O sleeper, from unaware to full awareness. Arise from the dead, from death to new life. And Christ will give you light from the darkness of slumber or even the grave, to become a beacon for others in the world. This is the day's reading from the letter of Paul to the Ephesians. Brothers and sisters, you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for light produces every kind of goodness and righteousness and truth. Try to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the fruitless works of darkness. Rather, expose them, for it is shameful even to mention the things done by them in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible, for everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ will give you light. And then we come to the story, relayed only in John's Gospel, of Jesus giving sight to a man born blind. As was the case last week, this is a much longer than usual reading. So again, I'll do an interlinear commentary to avoid taxing our collective memories too far, and I hope to save some words. First, however, Let's set the scene. Jesus is in Jerusalem during the Feast of Tabernacles, known in Hebrew as Sukkot. It is also known as the Feast of Booths. It is an autumn festival beginning five days after Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and going for a total of eight days. The feast celebrates the fall harvest and commemorates the huts, the Sukkoth, in which the Hebrews lived in their years in the desert following the exodus from Egypt. During that time, observant Jews will eat only in the booths, or tabernacles, which have been constructed for the festival. Some will also sleep in them. Sukkot is one of three pilgrim festivals in the Hebrew tradition, meaning all Jews who could afford to do so were encouraged to visit the great temple in Jerusalem. Jesus and his disciples are just leaving the temple area when they notice the blind beggar. It makes sense, of course, that a beggar would be out on a busy holiday to plead with the larger-than-usual crowds. 
Here is a reading from the Holy Gospel according to John. As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Three things of note here. First, it is Jesus who notices the blind beggar. The man isn't calling out to Jesus. Presumably, he's unaware of Jesus. No one is bringing the blind man to Jesus. Second, this man has never seen, ever. We might think of his creation, his becoming fully human, as somehow incomplete. And third, the question from the disciples about whose sin caused the blindness is another example of the widespread belief at the time that misfortune, illness, injury was a divine retribution for someone's sin. Jesus answered, Neither he nor his parents sinned. It is so that the works of God might be made visible through him. We have to do the works of the one who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus first corrects the faulty characterization of God as one who seeks retribution, even unto an otherwise innocent family member. Jesus explains the man's blindness as an opportunity for God's mercy to be seen as active in the world. It looks to me like Jesus is openly including his disciples as associated with his work, his mission. While it is day, night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus makes a bold proclamation about himself, but also seems to be foreshadowing his passion, death, resurrection, and ascension. Once that is accomplished, Jesus of Nazareth, as he has been known, will be absent from the human community. It will fall onto his followers to continue the mission. When he had said this, he spat on the ground and made clay with the saliva, and smeared the clay on his eyes, and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed, and came back able to see. John takes advantage of the common belief that saliva had healing qualities. I mean, come on, everybody knows about mom spit, right? The use of clay recalls the Adam creation story. If this man's creation was flawed or incomplete, then Jesus shows the power to bring it to completion. The application of the clay is a very personal action. We see divine love that is most incarnational, with humanity on an intimate level, making mud, touching his eyes, not sitting on some imaginary sky throne looking down. His instruction to go to the pool and wash is a clear reference to baptismal cleansing. It gives us a picture of leaving one type of life behind, in this case blindness, to take up a new, more fully human life. His neighbors and those who had seen him earlier as a beggar said, Isn't this the one who used to sit and beg? Some said, It is. But others said, No, 
He just looks like him. This is so often the reaction of others or the broader culture as a whole to a truly transformative event, skepticism. He's not really the one who was blind. We settle into groups, assign individuals their place within the group, and then resist anything that signals change. This doesn't sound like a defeated beggar talking, does it? He has recognized a great gift and has the courage to acknowledge it even in the face of skepticism. So they said to him, How were your eyes opened? He replied, The man called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and told me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went there and washed and was able to see. He is changed because of two things. First, Jesus presented the gift. But second, the man did the equally important task of following the directions he was given. Go, wash. Grace is given always. But the miracle is realized only after the human response. And they said to him, Where is he? He said, I don't know. They brought the one who was once blind to the Pharisees. The neighbors, presumably still skeptical, need to bring in the big guns here. Now Jesus had made clay and opened his eyes on a Sabbath. So then the Pharisees also asked him how he was able to see. He said to them, He put clay on my eyes, and I washed, and now I can see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a sinful man do such signs? And there was a division among them. Rules the rituals to signal belonging to a group take precedence over the recognition of the divine power to truly effect transformation. Some see the miraculous nature of the event, while others must cling to any excuse to discredit it and the one who accomplished it. So they said to the blind man again, What do you have to say about him since he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. An attempt at intimidating the man with new sight, perhaps, but he will not accede. Now the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and gained his sight until they summoned the parents of the one who had gained his sight. They asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? His parents answered and said, we know that this is our son, and that he was born blind. Drat! A second attempt to discredit Jesus has failed. The facts about the man's blindness are verified. So his parents continue their response. We do not know how he sees now, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He can speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone acknowledged him as the Christ, he would be expelled from the synagogue. 
Most scholars I've read agree that this last little bit is most likely an addition to the original story reflecting the post-resurrection movement to exclude followers of Jesus from the mainstream of Jewish life. For this reason, his parents said, He is of age, question him. So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give God praise. We know that this man is a sinner. He replied, If he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know is that I was blind, and now I see. So they said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? This doesn't sound remotely like a lowly, cowering beggar to me. He's taking all the Pharisees send his way and returning it with a little extra zip. They ridiculed him and said, You are that man's disciple? We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but we do not know where this one is from. The man answered and said to them, This is what is so amazing, that you do not know where he is from, yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if one is devout and does his will, he listens to him. It is unheard of that anyone ever opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he would not be able to do anything. He's still standing strong before the religious authorities. This man's new sight of faith seems to have sharpened his mind and freed his tongue to speak truth about his redemption, his re-creation. They answered and said to him, You were born totally in sin, and are you trying to teach us? Then they threw him out. Again, we have that erroneous characterization of God as one who would seek revenge on an innocent for some snub or offense by another. When Jesus heard that they had thrown him out, he found him and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Again, it is Jesus who reaches out to one who has suffered trial on his behalf. Jesus does not abandon those who walk with him. He answered and said, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. The one speaking with you is he. He said, I do believe, Lord, and he worshipped him. The second gift of new sight is here, the eyes of faith. Further, this man has no fear of being seen acknowledging the one to whom all is owed, even with the Pharisees still nearby. Then Jesus said, I came into this world for judgment, so that those who do not see might see, and those who do see might become blind. Some of the Pharisees who were with him heard this and said to him, Surely we are not also blind, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you are saying, We see. So your sin remains. 
Do you find it amusing, as I do, to see those who were discrediting and degrading Jesus just moments before now turn to him for reassurance? The blind man remains nameless. Remember, that means he's a stand-in for everybody, for each one of us. This man was blind through no fault of his own or of his parents. As his sight grew throughout the story, the chosen blindness of the Pharisees also grew and grew. It is their choice to remain closed to the presence of God that is the great and growing sin that remains. Enough. I apologize for being wordy. It's a rushed week and it takes a lot more time to be concise. I am Deacon Mark from Corpus Christi Catholic Church in Tucson, Arizona. As always, I pray your Lenten journey yields much growth in spirit for you and that our loving God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit always find a welcoming home in your heart.